0: Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As I'm sure many of you will know, today, the 6th of June, marks the 75th anniversary of D Day. So for today's episode, our editor Rob Attar spoke to the military historian James Holland who's the author of a new book about the Normandy campaign, about the Allied invasion of 1944. So five
2: years ago, you wrote a piece for our magazine, arguing that it was time to silence the D-Day doubters. Having written your new book, is that an opinion you still hold?
3: Absolutely. And I think what happened in the intervening five years is I didn't really feel that the doubters had been silenced. And I was still hearing the same worn old narrative and i think one of the problems is that you know the d-day story is a very familiar one in the normandy campaign it's one that's been written about ad infinitum. it's one that's been the subject of god knows how many documentaries and movies and all the rest of it hollywood's taken over quite a big way i think the narrative of it it's very american dominated and uh you know distortions have crept in and um You know, I just think a lot of these myths have grown up because of its very familiarity. And I just think it's time that everyone kind of kick those into touch. And there's a kind of broader, wider perspective to throw at this, to be honest.
2: Let's sort of begin at at the beginning, if we could. Why the 6th of June, 1944? And should it have been earlier as, for example, Stalin had been agitating for some time?
3: Yeah, I just don't think the Allies were ready in 1943. I mean, you know, Sicily was a massive operation, and there were very good reasons for going into North Africa before that. You know, America was so new to war. I mean, you know, when we look at the huge sort of material wealth of the Americans by 1944, it's it's easy to forget that back in 1940, they literally had nothing. You know, Roosevelt in June 1940, you know, after the fall of France, was staring at a US armed forces that were languishing behind in the world ratings. They were kind of 19th largest army at the start of the Second World War had tiny air corps not even an air force um you know navy was sort of okay but you know there wasn't a single manufacturer of explosives in the united states of america in 1939 they had to build up from from nothing and that meant that it's not just a question of building up all the material it's also kind of training people and and learning the lessons and and north africa enabled them to get onto the ground get into multi-service tri-service operations test it see what was going on without having a particularly stiff opposition to start off with, although it stiffened once they got into Tunisia. So there very, very good reasons for going into North Africa. And that helps not the Axis forces out of the entire North Africa, which then is a stepping stone to freeing up the whole of the Mediterranean and getting into the southern flank of, of Europe, all of which are perfectly good reasons. So, you know, that's why they're doing that in 1932 to 1943. And then, just not ready to do a cross-channel invasion. Uh, originally, it was going to be May, but then you know by that stage, we're in southern Italy as well. And there's just simply not enough shipping, especially when you have to add in all that's going on in the Pacific as well. There's a limit to how much shipping there is. And, and it's not a question of, of material strength. It's a, it's a question of how, how much you can bring over in an initial wave that's enough to make sure that you can resist any counterattack on D Day itself and D plus one, D plus two, and all the rest of it. And it is shipping that prevents them from going in in May. So they go in in June, by which time, kind of German defence is a little bit stronger. But, but it has to be uh, on the 5th, 6th, or 7th of June because that's when there's the right combination of moon and tides for their amphibious invasion. You know, and don't forget, it's an incredibly complex operation that involves air, land, and sea crossing across the whole of the English Channel. It's a heck of an undertaking.
2: Just drilling down into that a bit more, how much of a logistical challenge was this? What kind of numbers are we talking about?
3: Oh, just absolutely breathtakingly challenging. I mean, you know, you're talking about nearly 7,000 vessels of which 4,127 are landing craft, 1,213 are warships. You're talking about 11,600 aircraft operating in support of D-Day on D-Day itself. And you're also talking about a massive air operation in the nine weeks before D-Day, Uh, which is absolutely vital to the whole thing and actually is one of the big things that's been completely left out of the narrative. People tend to kind of see D-Day Normandy as a predominantly kind of land operation. Well, it isn't. It's a tri-service operation. Then you've got to allocate everyone into those ships. You've got to get them uh, into different invasion forces. You've got to coordinate them with the air power, um, both strategic air forces, which are used to operating on their own, as well as tactical forces, which are there to support ground troops. And you've got to get across um, an English channel, which is absolutely thick with enemy mines and you've got a clear channel so that your huge invasion fleet of nearly 7,000 be- um, vessels can actually get through, you know, the challenges are absolutely enormous. And you've got to try and do all this while keeping the Germans guessing as to exactly when and where they're going to land. Uh, it is really impossible to understate just how many challenges there are and what a massively complex operation this is in a pre-digital, pre-satellite world.
2: Now, um, how how effective were the Allies at keeping the Germans guessing? I mean, there was such a huge build-up going on. How prepared were the Germans for what was going to come to them on Normandy?
3: This is one of those 50-50 things. I mean, it was an absolutely amazing intelligence operation on the behalf of the Allies, and one that was sort of led predominantly by the British. You know, operation Fortitude was incredibly successful um, in keeping them guessing by having dummy armies and corps and things all dotted across England, keep the Germans guessing as to where the main point of the invasion might be. Um, there was also double agents and a whole system of fake agents and so on, all of which was sort of feeding into the into the Germans to try and confuse them. All that was incredibly successful. Fortunately, the Germans. Our own intelligence system wasn't terribly effective, it was kind of riven with infighting. So, you have the Abwehr, which is a military intelligence system, which by 1944 is largely mistrusted and discounted. You've got the uh, other secret intelligence services. And one of the problems the Germans have is that intelligence is power in Nazi Germany, so it never comes together. And what's really interesting about, about the Allied intelligence system is that while we put an awful lot of focus on decrypts of Enigma traffic, you know, the, the decoding operations that took place on German signals. Collectively, all the different strands of intelligence added up to much more than the sum of their individual parts. And I think when one's looking at intelligence, allied intelligence, you have to look at the, the, the sum of it rather than pick out individual bits. So it's also the Y service. It's also, you know, photo reconnaissance. It's also um, yeah, French resistance and agents on the other side of the channel kind of reporting back. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on. There's a huge um, operation to get people to hand in post cards of pre-war France so that they can look at what the streets are like and all the rest of it I mean you know, it's, it's incredibly thorough um, no stone is left unturned and fortunately it keeps the Germans guessing and they, they're never 100% sure of where the invasion is going to be. What is really interesting though is if you look at the, look at the coastline you know, it's incredibly unlikely that it's going to be Normandy because where would you land a major invasion force in Normandy? You know, all the west coast is kind of rocky. There's hardly any beaches. There's those huge fjords and so on. The infrastructure doesn't really support it. So that seems incredibly unlikely, even though kind of Hitler still thinks it's a possibility. And he keeps some 300,000 troops up there, uh, as well as tanks and vehicles and guns and all sorts. The northern Dutch coast is is kind of problematic as well from an infrastructure point of view, because they're islands and the road network isn't particularly brilliant there, even though there are beaches. Uh, further south, you've got the Calais, Well, the Padacale is the strongest part of the Atlantic wall. And again, logic would tell you that it's unlikely the Allies are going to land at the strongest point. And thereafter, you've got kind of either side of the Seine Estuary, and then you've got Normandy. Um, and below that, you've got Brittany, and then the kind of Atlantic coast all the way down to the Spanish border, which feels kind of too far away and is going to be out of um, range of fighter cover, which is essential for any amphibious invasion. I mean, even Hitler understands that back in 1940. So really, you're limiting it to just about Brittany, but probably not. Realistically, the Normandy coast and and the kind of lower Padre Calais and, and either side of the Seine Estuary. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the Germans to kind of work that out and hedge their bets that it would come in that area. I mean, logic suggests that that's the case. But what is logical to us historians 75 years on isn't logical in the kind of warped, weird world of Nazi Germany. I mean, that's the truth of the matter.
2: We obviously know nowadays that, that D-Day succeeded, but how much of a risk would you say the Allies were taking? Is there any way it could have failed the whole operation?
3: Yeah, I think there is, because I, I, I just think the logistics of it are so complicated. You know, there's so many things that could have gone wrong. They could have hit a mine bank. The mining operation might not have worked. The Germans might have planned differently. They might have put their panzer divisions really close in that area that I've just been talking about. You know, either side of the Seine Estuary and in the Normandy area, um, it would have been quicker for them to um, to counterattack and counterattack in a coordinated way. I mean, I think on balance, it's probably unlikely, but it certainly didn't seem that way to the Allies at the time. It seemed fraught with risk. You know, the weather is a is a is a cruel mistress. Uh, and an actual fat is not as bad as it might have been. And, and they get away with it. But but, um, you know, the, there was all sorts of potential hazards from the weather. The biggest one, of course, was just that the, the Germans would rumble it and they'd be prepared and they'd know what was happening. The intelligence picture would escape and there's lots of things that could have gone wrong, trust me. I mean, you know, and I think I think it's, in retrospect, it's too easy to go, oh, it's a foregone conclusion. An amphibious invasion of that scale, of that nature, is an incredibly difficult operation to pull off. I mean, you need an awful lot of things to go right. And broadly speaking, despite, you know, moments of chaos and panic and things not going 100% right, broadly speaking, they do all go right. Uh, and D-Day is not just... It's not that they just get a foothold. Basically, everything that they want to achieve is achieved with the possible exception of the capture of coal and the kind of sort of opposite the invasion beaches. They don't get quite the kind of objectives that they're supposed to. But it's nonetheless an incredibly successful operation, brilliantly executed. And that's because the planning, the logistics, the supply system, everything, every part of the chain is incredibly well thought through.
2: It's interesting you say that because I imagine a lot of people's view of D-Day is the bloodshed, and particularly say on Omaha Beach, where obviously a lot a lot of soldiers did lose their lives landing, but even despite that, we'd still consider the landings to be to be a great success.
3: Yeah, I mean, my research into Omaha Beach is it's probably not as bad as the broad perspective of it is. I mean, you know, it's incredibly strongly dictated by the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan. So that's one film where it's completely turned how we view history on its head. And and it's not to say there weren't scenes of appalling destruction. There were. But but the impression you get from watching Saving Private Ryan is that that it was a sort of Mass slaughter of thousands, a bit like the first day of the Somme, these sort of lambs sent to the slaughter. They were absolutely had no chance against this elite German defenders with their withering machine guns and all the rest of it. You know, and, and it's a very distorted picture because yes, at certain parts of the beach at 6:30, when the invasion began, there were some pretty horrific casualties. But A, it wasn't across the whole five-mile stretch to the beach. And B, it pretty quickly changed. I mean, you know, what you're talking about there is, is what was happening at the Verville draw and what's happening at the Colville draw. Elsewhere, even in those first waves, some of the assault platoons were getting across the beach without any problem whatsoever. One of the reasons the casualties were so high in that initial assault was because two mortar bombs fell directly into the landing craft as they were approaching the shoreline. Two assault platoons just gone just like that. The truth of the matter is, is is the defenders were only about 350 strong on the actual crust. There were about 15 strong points overlooking Omaha, of which only 13 were actually directly overlooking. All of them were in plain view of the offshore naval guns. They were hammered not only by air power, albeit very inaccurately, but also by naval power pretty much the whole time. And they only had 85 machine guns, which sounds like quite a lot, but they only had 35 guns, of which only two were 88 millimeter in caliber. What we're talking about when we say 88mm is the diameter of the shell. And opposite them were 183 guns of 90mm calibre and above. And you know, a lot of those were substantially above. Now, if you're in your bunker overlooking Omaha Beach and and shells start falling on your bunker, you might not have your bunker knocked out. But you're going to be covered in grit and dust and smoke. And you're not going to be able to see anything. And, And you're certainly not going to be seeing part from vaguely, um, Americans disgorging from their their landing craft, and every time that shell comes in, you're going to be ducking, crouching down, praying to God and for your mother, uh, and bits of grit will be flying all over the place and shards of concrete and so on. Um, it would be deeply, deeply unhealthy place to be. And the first strong point is taken out at about I think it's about eight eight thirty something like that, and they're all interlocking. So once one goes, there's a massive domino effect. And they all go up pretty quickly. And the other problem with those 85 machine guns is they're incredibly rapid firing. They fire MG42s operated at about 23 bullets a second. And that means your barrel very quickly starts to overheat and the accuracy goes. So as long as you keep moving on the beaches with all that smoke and dust and there was a fire with the bushes and the hedgerows and brambles and stuff on the on the bluffs caught fire. So that added to the mayhem as well. Um, you know, it's, quite, it's comparatively easy for, the, for for the Americans to actually get off the beaches. Um, and so they do. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, 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 you know, Omaha Beach is all over by nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, people are still going to get killed and people are still going to get hurt and there's firing going to continue well into the afternoon. But the outcome's not really in doubt by then. And it's quite interesting. I've got this photograph of, of the 18th Infantry Division, which is part of the 1st Infantry Division, which lands at Easy Red, which is on the eastern side of Omaha Beach. They're landing at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And you can see there's absolutely no carnage whatsoever. I mean, you know, they're getting there's smoke, they're kind of, you know, it's all looking a little bit kind of middle of battle, but it's hardly a whole scale slaughter on the beaches when they're landing. And that's at 10 o'clock in the morning. And the interesting thing is there's been some recent research on on the number of casualties at Omar Beach. And in actual fact, the figure is 842 dead, and that's allied because an awful lot of the uh, people manning the landing craft are British as well. Uh, and 842 dead is a, is a lot, but it's only about 2.3% of those landed, I think, on D-Day. You know, so in the big scheme of things, it's not that much. It's a lot, but it's it's perhaps not as big as and as bloody as people think it is.
2: On the first day, on D Day itself, was there anything the Germans could have done differently to have strangled Overlord at birth? Uh,
3: yes, they could have done what Robel suggested and moved all the uh, Panzer divisions within a stone's throw of the Normandy and River Seine. Uh, front, they could um, Hitler could have not insisted on being the only person to authorize the Panzer division's movement. General Marx, who is the corps commander on the Normandy front, who is generally considered to be a highly experienced and incredibly capable commander, could have kept his mobile reserve in reserve rather than sending them off on a wild goose chase after American paratroopers. I mean, you know, you have to remember that the Germans invented airborne warfare, and they know perfectly well that the paratroopers are very lightly armed. And they are a coup de man operation um, that is coming ahead of the main assault. In other words, where there's airborne troops, necessarily there needs to be a follow up of of a a main attack because otherwise those airborne troops are going to be unsupported and going to be running short of ammo and, and won't be able to sustain what they need to do. So for Marx to send his mobile reserve off off after American paratroopers before he'd realised what was really happening and before he'd kind of taken his time to assess what might be following up in the wake of the paratroopers seems to me a kind of really bad military decision. And yet he's supposed to be one of the competent ones. So there's all sorts of things that they do wrong that would have given them a much greater chance of certainly giving the Allies a much bloodier nose, put it that way. There is massive command incompetence. I mean, it is absolutely incredible that... Rommel is away that time. And it is amazing how often senior commanders seem to be away just at the moment that Allies launch a major operation. I mean, you know, Rommel was away when the Battle of Alamein began on the 23rd of October 1942. Um, half the senior commander away uh, when Operation Diadem was launched on the 10th of May, 19 uh, on the 11th of May, rather, on, um, in 1944 for the Battle for Rome. You know, it's careless. Rommel is away the night before on the 5th. Max Spidel, who is his chief of staff, is holding the fort at um, Court at Roche Guillon, which is a kind of sort of fancy first World War style chateau, a um, hundred miles or so from where the invasion front comes on the River Seine. And Spidel has mates around for supper and they get absolutely half cut. I mean, you know, they're drinking vast bottles of wine, brandies, all the rest of it, turning in about two o'clock in the morning. You know, Spiegel is frankly just in no position whatsoever to make any serious decisions because he's, he's pissed. You can't fail to be if you're drunk all night. And so it clouds his judgment and his ability to think properly. You know, the only panzer division that's actually available in the Normandy area is 21st Panzer and the commander is in Paris at night. So he doesn't get back till 5.30. And then there's lots of sort of faffing about and prevaricating about what the orders should be. The orders aren't even given by by Hitler until four that afternoon. I mean, the halving is an absolute catastrophe of command.
0: Coming up next on the History Extra podcast.
3: The man who saves the lives of his men is the one that actually should be applauded rather than the one who just has cut and dash.
4: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Now, obviously, D-Day was far from the end of the battle for Normandy and it took several more weeks until overall Allied victory there was assured. And a number of historians have been quite critical of the Allied campaign following the 6th of June and the seemingly slow progress. Why, why do you think it was so difficult to push inland after
3: D-Day? I think that criticism is completely misguided. I really do. I, I really wonder whether anyone who's, who's who has that criticism has actually walked the ground, has actually walked through the bocage or walked through the open folds and open spaces and narrow gullies of the area around Caen. What's really interesting is on D plus one, the advanced elements, the advanced regiment of the 12th SS hitler Panzer Division turn up. And, you know, they are 21,000 strong. So they're bigger than, than most divisions. And they're bristling with weaponry. They're all gung-ho and absolutely spoiling for a fight. And they come up initially against a battalion of Canadian infantry and a handful of Sherbrooke Fusilier Sherman tanks, and then a second battalion. And they managed to push the Canadians back about a mile. And that's it. And this is, it's absolutely extraordinary. It tells you one of three things. It tells you either that the Canadians are much better than we give them the credit for, which is probably true. Or it tells you that the the 12th SS are much worse than we give them credit for, which probably isn't true. Or it tells you... But it's incredibly difficult to go on the offensive in Normandy, which I would say is most definitely true. It's incredibly hard. And what you've got to understand is being in defence when you've got some half-decent weapons like 75mm high-velocity anti-tank guns and machine guns and tanks and 88mm guns and mortars, it's very easy to defend with that. Well, not easy, but it's comparatively straightforward. And it's very hard to attack through that because you're exposing yourself to, to enemy fire. And there's no real way around it apart from pummeling your enemy with air power, offshore naval guns, artillery, and all the rest of it, and then pushing forward your armour, your tanks, and your infantry, and hoping that they kind of achieve a breakthrough. Don't forget that after the First World War, you know, by 1944, weaponry is much more powerful, much more lethal. Uh, the violence that weaponry causes is much greater. So that's the area around Caen. And don't forget that the British, by the beginning of July, are up against seven panzer divisions. You know, there is no greater intensity of panzer divisions anywhere in the world in the war than there is around Caen in July 1944. And yet the British and Canadians managed to completely grind those divisions down till they're a kind of skeleton force. That can't happen if you're really bad you know, you're, you're just rubbish. I mean, the Allies are fighting this big war. They're fighting a firepower heavy war where uh, they're trying to use industrialization, mechanisation, modern science and technology to do a lot of the hard yards so that the actual number of troops at the cold face of war is a, a minimum. And they do that incredibly effectively. But you still have to send forward your infantry and your armour to goad the Germans to counterattack. And it always works because the Germans counterattack with Pavlovian frequency. It's, it's their kind of default position. They can't help themselves. They're, they're just preordained to, to always counterattack. The moment they counterattack, they are in turn moving up out of their foxholes and their camouflage and places of protection, exposing themselves. And at that moment, the full weight of Allied firepower rains down on them and they're chewed to pieces. And that's basically what happens. And it's always kind of sort of painted that it's the British army and Canadians fighting, banging their heads against a brick wall of Panther divisions. When in actual fact, it's completely the opposite way around. Whereas, you know, in the Bocage, the Americans are having a terribly difficult time. Bocage got a sort of mound of earth and soil on top of which the hedgerows grow. It's a perfect kind of flexible defense for the Germans. And it's incredibly difficult to break through it. And and again, you just can't do it without exposing yourselves. Uh, and you have to get the Germans to kind of counterattack again, and so that the full weight of firepower can, can be rained down on them. In exactly the same way as it's happening around Conn. It's just that the landscape is incredibly difficult. I mean, when you're walking around the Bocage area of the Cotonan Peninsula, or, you know, either side of San lo the town of San lo and you look at that landscape, and you think, gosh, you know, the Americans were in here for about six weeks until they broke through. You think, that's pretty good effort. I mean... I just defy anyone to criticise the cloness of the Allies in that landscape. What they were doing was grinding down the Germans. The German command, don't forget, is absolutely desperate to retreat in stages, exactly as they've done in Tunisia, as they've done in Sicily, as they've done in southern Italy. It is Hitler who won't let them do that. And one of the reasons they want to retreat in stages is because by fighting close to the shore, by fighting close to the coast, They're actually within range of allied offshore naval guns, which makes no military sense whatsoever. The reason Hitler's doing it is because Normandy, unlike Sicily or southern Italy or indeed Tunisia, is somewhere where, you know, potentially new Mark 21 brilliant submarines can operate from from the coast in Brittany. But once you've lost that Atlantic coast, it's gone. You can never reclaim that. And so it is of far more strategic importance, the Normandy coastline, than those other places, or indeed the Eastern Front. You know, you can can exchange space for time on the Eastern Front in a way you cannot in Normandy. But it still doesn't get away from the fact that militarily it's a really bad decision because all you're doing is grinding up your best units, which is exactly what happens. And when the floodgates do open, suddenly the Germans are forced backwards and they're forced to move backwards in daylight hours which means they're completely exposed to the YARBOs, the Allied fighter bombers, who just chew them to pieces even more. Air power, as I mentioned at the beginning, is completely underestimated. The role it has, it has a vital role in preparing the way for D-Day. It has a vital role on D-Day. It has a vital role in supporting the, ground operations throughout the Normandy campaign, um, in the final phase of the campaign, once the breakout has happened on the American sector and suddenly the floodgates are opened, that is when they absolutely are decisive and just shooting up everything that moves. And it is unbelievably debilitating for the Germans. It's an absolute horror story. Um, And that is why at the very end of the Normandy campaign, you know, barely two dozen tanks out of two and a half thousand armoured fighting vehicles that the Germans have in Normandy managed to get away. I mean, it is an absolutely phenomenal
1: success.
2: Kind of related point, I guess, is the calibre of the troops on the two sides, because you often hear this idea that the German defenders were these elite soldiers far superior to the Allied troops. Do you think that holds much truth?
3: No, I think it's absolute nonsense. If you have a sort of, you know, a straight line, as your kind of sort of average, not bad division. I think American and British divisions sort of, you know, creep either side of that line. Whereas I think the German ones, it's much more um, exaggerated. The kind of, you know, the poor divisions are really poor. The better divisions are really good. But I mean, you know, probably the best division in the whole of the German armed forces is the Panzer And the Panzer is incredibly well-equipped. It's incredibly well-led. It's full of really highly experienced officers and NCOs. Uh, And this is the kind of, you know, the shining beacon of what German militarism can be. And yet when they come up against the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry and the Durham Light Infantry, uh, when they arrive at the front in, in, in the sort of 9th, 10th, 11th of June, they get absolutely nowhere. You know, so... The disparity is not that great. You know, if they were any good, they'd have been able to break through a kind of what is effectively a TA division uh, and a regional regiment of the line. And yet they don't. They don't make any headway at all. So I think it's been massively exaggerated. I just think we're all kind of a bit dazzled by tactical chutzpah. You know, this idea that all German troops are brilliant is just nonsense. What the Germans have is discipline, because if you don't do what you're told, you're going to get executed. Um, And we don't have that, of course, in the Allied forces. But that doesn't mean to say they're well-trained or they're superior. And, you know, yes, it is true that, you know, officers in the first part of the war, you know, what you had to do was earn your stripe to become an NCO um, and then eventually you'd be sent to Krieg School. All oh, that's gone by the kind of middle of 1942. You know, people are just being promoted in the field and it's a completely different system of officer cadetship. It's this idea that they're all much better. You've got to remember that what the Germans do have as an advantage is that they're brought up into a militaristic state. They do the Hitler Youth. They do their kind of Labour Corps, um, and then they get put into the front. They're already imbued with a sense of discipline that is not there in in the conscript troops of the Western democracies. But in actual fact, the vast majority of Allied troops are considerably better and longer trained than any of the Germans by uh, by 1944. I mean, there isn't a single soldier on D-Day who hasn't been training for at least two years. Uh, and there's plenty of German troops where who've only been in the front line for got kind of a matter of weeks, and the troops that are uh, defending the crust, the actual Atlantic Wall, are actually on the coast, are among the very worst. You know, they're in static divisions, they've got no equipment, they're under resourced. Um, there's lots of Ost-Battalion troops, sort of, you know, basically pressed troops from the East who don't want to be there. You know, you're reaching the dregs of the very young or middle-aged who, because all the, the first flush of youth, young men have already been killed, you know, on the Eastern Front and elsewhere in the war. This idea that they're on a kind of different pedestal to the Allies is just nonsense. It's because they, they seem to be able to act swifter and with greater flexibility. But that's because of the freedom of their material poverty it is because they don't have very much so it's quite easy to organize them when you're only organizing a handful of disparate troops you can click your fingers and they'll all be in line pretty quickly you know you haven't got to coordinate those operations with air power or naval power but the allies are very long tail heavy they're fighting a big war a big industrialized war and that takes longer to organize so it appears stodgy but in actual fact it's a much more effective way of fighting and it is much more mindful of the lives of of the young men of their, of those particular nations and that's surely totally something to be applauded.
2: How do you rate some of the sort of key generals in the Normandy campaign on the allied side I'm thinking particularly people like Montgomery and Patton who people do already have quite strong views.
3: Monty's not you know he's not a brilliantly imaginative tactician he never was and that's not his thing. What he's very good at is fighting an operational war, an operational heavy war, the big war that the Allies have adopted. Um, And he's absolutely the right man for that. He's incredibly well organized. He knows the limitations of manpower. He understands how to coordinate air, land and sea together. He understands the long tail and he understands that he's got a very clear view of what the enemy can do. And he's got a very clear picture of what can be achieved by Allied troops. And I think all his planning is pretty much spot on. I mean, you know, he's not, the, he's not responsible for the D-Day plan, but he's the overall architect. And I don't really see how you can fault it. I don't really see how you can fault his decision to go with Operation Epsom. I think, you know, there's some question marks over using strategic bombers on, on CON, for example. But you've got this huge amount of firepower that you can, you can use to really debilitate your enemy and that might save the lives of some of your frontline troops. I mean, you know, it's not really surprising that he uses that. And with the possible exception of the bombing of Caen um, before the main attack kind of, in the beginning of the second week of July, really, his use of air power, I think, is pretty good. I mean, you know, he's criticised for using it at, at, at Operation Goodwood in the third week of July. But actually, I think that's entirely reasonable. and it, And it causes the Germans, a huge amount of problems. Bradley, I think, is a really good commander. I think all the commanders are really good. I mean, you know, Patton is a brilliantly charismatic character. He's a, a bit of a hot potato. It's interesting, when you look at the casualties for Third Army, which is Patton's army, they're considerably higher than anybody else's. And I would argue that by that stage of the war, when you've got this huge amount of industry and mechanisation and, mechanization and technology behind you, that the man who saves the lives of his men is the one that actually should be applauded rather than the one who just has cut and dash. So I think you don't want to just be a tactical commander. You want to be a tactical, strategic and operational commander. And I think, you know, the broad front slightly methodical approach that the Allied commanders have on the whole, I think is, is absolutely the correct one. And I don't, I don't buy this kind of, you know, it's boring, it's unimaginative. Who cares? It's about winning the war. And what you've got to do is you've got to try and win the war as quickly as possible for the few, least amount of casualties. And that's an incredibly difficult line to tread. And I think, by and large, there are exceptions, but I think, by and large, they get it about right.
2: And you mentioned earlier about the bombing of Karl. And I so suppose one aspect of... Of D Day in the Battle of Normandy isn't always discussed, is the effect on the local civilians. So, what, what kind of impact did this campaign have on the French people in the area?
3: Oh, well, it's absolutely terrible. But one has to be incredibly careful not to judge the Battle of Normandy and any part of the Second World War by the standards of the second decade of the 21st century, because the rules of engagement have just completely and utterly changed. But the levels of destruction are absolutely appalling. Uh, and, you know, Con is the least of it. Look at San lo look at Vallone, look at Marigny, look at any of these towns, look at, I don't know, Avranche. I mean, so many of these towns in Normandies are absolutely flattened and it's not the preserve of just the British, you know, the British half. I mean, it is the Americans just as much. And it is this kind of recognition that, yeah, we're happy to come and liberate you. But we're not happy to come and liberate you and slaughter an entire generation of our young men. It has to be understood to come at a price. And, and all I would say is the number of French civilian casualties is considerably less than the casualties of the Canadians or the British or the Americans or any one of them, for that matter. So it's a question of perspective. You know, the level of civilian casualties by 21st century standards is completely unacceptable. But by the standards of 1944, it's something that they feel is a kind of price that has to be paid. The alternative is you have an even longer grinding attritional war where there's even more violence, where the French are suffering under the yoke of Nazism and tyranny for even longer. You know, what would you prefer? And the number of civilian losses in Normandy and the Normandy campaign is kind of 15 to 20,000, you know, which is a heck of a lot. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's as nothing compared to allied losses. But the physical damage is absolutely horrific. I mean, you know, whole cities destroyed, whole towns destroyed. I mean, Villa Bocage, which I mentioned earlier on, you know, utterly flattened. Tilly Sir Sul, which is where the Panzer Lair, who I mentioned earlier, come into contact with, with the Sherwood Rangers and everything, and the 8th Independent Armoured Brigade, you know, there is one house standing at the end of that battle. And you only got to wander around Normandy, and you look at all these villages, and if they look a little bit kind of new and modern and ugly and... You know, that's because they were completely destroyed 75 years ago.
2: As you say, we're now on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. and Clearly, no one doubts the scale and the success of the operation. But how much did it match in terms of the overall course of the war? What What is the ultimate significance of D-Day?
3: The ultimate significance of D-Day is it's the first time that Allies attempt to get a foothold onto the continental landmass in strength and permanently, and they pull it off. And I think everyone recognised at the moment that the Allies were defeated in 1940, that to get back in again was going to be an incredibly difficult challenge. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Americans and and British were both sort of at ground zero in June 1940. I mean, the British army had been neutralised. It was very small in the first place. You know, the, the whole point was Britain's ally France was going to do most of the land power bit, but that's gone. So they have to completely start again from scratch. The Americans have to turn themselves into a kind of warfare state, which they're absolutely not in the 1930s. They're isolationist, inward looking, have a very, very small military and turn all that around. And in very quick order to defeat a nation which is entirely built on its militarism. That is an incredible achievement. Uh, And it is done by superior planning, superior organisation, by the bare courage of the men involved, and women for that matter, and by greater use and ruthlessness of prioritisation of assets that they have. Um, And it is done incredibly efficiently. And I think the reason we commemorate it is because it's the totality of effort, the totality of cooperation between two coalition partners, two main coalition partners, but also... Canadians and others involved, and because it is the beginning of the end of that period of Nazi tyranny on continental Europe. And you know, the benefits of that freedom that the Allies bring are still being felt today, despite the kind of rise of nationalism and populism and all the rest of it, in the lurch to the extreme left and extreme right. We are still living in a free Europe, and that is because of the liberation, the quelling of fascism and Nazism in
0: 1944-45. That was James Holland. James's book, Normandy 44, D-Day and the Battle for France, is out now, published by Bantam Press. This November, James will be speaking about D-Day at History Weekend in Winchester. Tickets are available now at historyextra.com forward slash events. You can also read James's feature on General Montgomery in a special D-Day supplement in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. For more historical content, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday to speak to Jonathan Phillips about Saladin.